Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Jonathan Meads, the food writer, cultural critic, architectural historian, broadcaster, cultural theorist and all-round expert on everything. His new book is called The Plagiarist in the Kitchen, A Lifetime's Culinary Theft, which manages to be at once a cookbook containing 125 recipes and a kind of subtle, threaded disquisition on plagiarism itself. Jonathan, the title, you nicked that, didn't you? The title is plagiarised, of course. Julian Barnes wrote a book called The Pedant in the Kitchen. And when I told him I was doing this, he... He wasn't browned off, but he he, he he kind of wondered about what I, what I was um, actually doing. And I, I said, well, it's a homage. And he said, oh, that's all right. Um, so homage to Barnes. It's, um, yes, it is disquisition on plagiarism, but it's, it's also in, implicitly, frequently implicitly, a criticism or castigation of other cookbooks, and sometimes explicitly so. I have a kind of dislike of um, the vast majority of cookbooks, which seem to, which are plagiaristic, evidently. The difference with this is that it admits to that plagiarism. The cookery book industry obviously has to, it's like grape shot, it's like the publishing industry in general. It throws out loads of stuff and hopes that in the midden someone will find a diamond or at least a bit of... Um, Cut glass, but there isn't copyright on recipes in any case. Is there almost any? No, there isn't copyright on recipes. But I think if one was to use the very words that another cookbook writer had employed, one would probably be plagiarising. It depends how long. There's one recipe in there which is taken word for word from another author, namely Anthony Burgess. And I did hot pot, yes. And I did take precaution of checking with the Burgess Foundation in Manchester, who I've done quite a lot of work with, and they were very happy about it. And and Burgess himself is happy, I'm sure, somewhere, somewhere. (laughs) One question that sort of seems to arise in the book, because you talk about literary plagiarism as well. I mean, but you you talk about cooking as a craft as distinct from from literature as an art. I mean, is is there a point of comparison between literary and Culinary plagiarism. Um, I think I think cu- culinary plagiarism is probably less self-conscious than literary plagiarism. I'm there are various instances of literary plagiarism which I mention. Swift, Stern, are ob- obvious ones. The story uh, of Stern is very funny because you say that he he plagiarised his dis- discussion of plagiarism. Yes, yes nobody noticed. Nobody and noticed. He, this joke he, that nobody he, hoped, got. he hoped someone would notice. It, it, it was a rather Duchamp-like act, but it was undiscovered when he died, which must have been slightly galling, I think, because I think with any kind of forgery, the forger desperately wants to be found out because the forger wants to show that, yes, he can paint as well as Cezanne or Tintoretto or Caspar David Friedrich or anyone. I mean, and the amount of forgery around, is visual forgery, is extraordinary. Um, Rebecca John, granddaughter of Augustus, verifies her grandfather's work for various auction houses, and an astonishing amount of stuff comes through. And John is not really a particularly fashionable artist any longer. I mean, his drawings obviously are more highly rated than his paintings, I think, but 
and there've been the painter Atkinson Grimshaw, for instance, who did nocturnes in the north of England of Liverpool Docks, Rotherham, wonderful one of the great hotel at Scarborough. He was plagiarised in, in, in his lifetime. That seems a high-risk road for a forger to take. It, it is, but forgers obviously in some cases do get away with it, but they have this desire to admit to their, to their crime uh, because were, were they, they not good at their art, they, they would, no one would ever think of buying a forgery of Cezanne, say, which looked entirely like a work by you know, Otto Dix. So there, there is it's a very, very peculiar thing. I don't think literary forgery is like that. Literary, I, think, I think it often happens accidentally. I mean, I have stacks of notebooks, and I don't know where the observations in those notebooks come from in many instances. Well, some quite high-profile cases, aren't there, of historians who historians, said, you know, they, they, they transcribe their notes. Historians are at it yeah. the whole time, much more, I think, than writers of fiction or essayistic writers. But no, it, it seems to plague the discipline of history. But I mean, the other thing that historians are doing all the time, of course, is arguing with their predecessors. And most of the book will be taken up with that argument rather than, you know, Arnhem or the Ardennes Offensive or something. Exactly. We should, I should steer you momentarily back onto food. You spent 15 years, I think, as the Times' restaurant critic and food writer. What Can you sketch out your own sort of culinary environment when you were growing up? You, you describe your father shooting hair and, you know, poaching eels and so forth. So obviously there was some, you know, some of that yeah. was in your background. But. Yes. My, my father was in India and Iraq during the war. And when he came back in 1946, he had had his chef make up many spice mixes, which were put into boxes about six inches tall and four inches wide, and soldered them. So the spices were kept fresh. And this diet of his curries and things went on till the early 60s. And I haven't been to an Indian restaurant now for about 15 years. Um, which that would have been quite unusual, <laughs> what? wouldn't it? Would it be quite unusual for an English house to be filled with curries until the early 60s? Yes, it probably, it, it, probably, it was very, very unusual. He was not only a glutton for his own curries, but he would go on, we'd go on mad trips over, all over London to find particular dishes and so on. So, so there was that sort of degree of sort of single-issue cooking on one side, and my mother's rather more Catholic tastes on the other, and she was a very good cook. And her mother, my maternal grandmother, where we go every fortnight, and we, we lived in Salisbury. My mother's family all lived in Southampton, and she would um, she would cook things like tripe and onions, which I I loved, and um, it's always a bit of kensitas yes, ash you in them. Flavored one ate everything but the squeal. I mean, there was there was rationing. I mean, even after rationing stopped, there was de facto r- rationing. I mean, the, the, the great shortages. The Atlee Cripps experiment of cheap food for everyone had resulted in bad food for everyone, in chicken which was fed on a fish meal and tasted absolutely disgusting, on very watery bacon 
bacon which is injected with saline yeah, solution. Horrible white stuff yes, comes yeah. out when you cook it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One doesn't see so much of that any longer. Well, I don't think one does anymore. Well, you're, you're pretty down on the English sausage. I hate the English sausage. As I said, abattoir, slurry and a condom. <laughs> I find them repulsive. I don't mind English pork pies. Melton Mowbray pork pie is a very fine thing. Um, but the the sausages are pretty disgusting, especially if you live in France, where the sausages are absolutely astonishingly good. And when did you start cooking yourself? I mean, there's this... A description of you making a sub to impress a girlfriend. I mean, yeah, it was when I was probably 17 or 18, and that uh, I blame Len Dayton, as I say. Yes, why do Len- you blame Len Dayton? Is well, this- Len Dayton made cooking for men sort of sexy and necessary, and his alter ego, Michael Caine, in The Ipcress File, did things like grind his own coffee and so on and, and that seemed pretty groovy in the in the days of Nescaf and so on although my parents actually didn't didn't have Nescaf they had a you know cafetiere thing which you put on top of the stove and I, I was very conscious that I ate well at home whereas most of my friends didn't and this was not due to indigence or anything it was just a cultural thing yeah you seem to also have hung out with quite a foodie sort of set i mean you describe you know parties of jane griggson and paul levy and people like that who are now kind of yeah well you know, I, I did, that was much much later when i when i was doing when i became i worked for the times and i'd written a bit on food before i was recruited by the times i mean i never expected to stay at the times for more than about six months but every time i decided to leave they gave me more money so it's a kind of gilded cage and it was not really good for my career in general and the sort of cooking that dominates this book it seems to be kind of i mean you live in france now you spent all there's a lot of sort of classic french cooking and by the by the time, sort of some spanish as well probably i mean is that your sort of culinary heartland yes absolutely although i do like I like the Baltic. I like Hamburg very much, and it's my, absolutely my favourite city. And, I mean, I could never live there because I, I can't speak German. I mean, I'm, I'm fine in France because I've spoken French all my life from a very, very young age. But, I mean, you know, before I, before I learned it at school. But I like the cooking of the North. I like herrings. I like schnapps. I like labscouts. Um but you can't go for too far east because you get all this dill poured over it. You just go yeah. endlessly scraping dill off dishes yes, in Russian it, restaurants. Yes, it, it, it's a, a major problem. It's, I, I, I'm, Russian cooking is very good, Georgian cooking especially. Well, it's not Russian cooking. But, yes, I'm, you know, Helsinki, you eat very... I mean, Chirac, when he said there's nothing more disgusting than British food apart from Finnish food, was completely off the money. Wonderful food in Helsinki. Rather like kind of food that you get in very good delis in New York, sort of kippered salmon, hot smoked salmon, cold smoked salmon, etc, etc and you, you get all that in Helsinki you yes. can't drink though because a bottle of table wine costs about 30 quid Oh yes, incredibly. I mean, treat us some of the things that you, you sort of just, I mean you seem very nervous of celery, for instance you're, you've got a lot of celery in the book but you're all, particularly near the beginning you're saying you know, don't don't overdo the celery. Celery is very aggressive. You know, it, it, it is. It is extremely aggressive, and so is tarragon aggressive and basil aggressive. I mean, there, there are certain things which I think have to be used with great moderation, if at all. In fact, you're not keen on herbs. I'm not keen on oh. herbs. No, I think I think they take over. I think if you you cook a chicken with tarragon, you eventually end up with t- tarragon. Yeah. And one doesn't want that. One, one wants really good chicken, and I think. In general, the fewer 
ingredients and the fewer flavouring agents, the better. It's um, a lot of, a lot of you, you say, say at one point that you, you think that sort of the less, less on the plate, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I mean, the thing of, you know, three most depressing words in the English language, which, I mean, King's Amos is like red or white. A friend of my friends, my friend of mine came up with new comedy series, which I think is excellent. And mine is all the trimmings. I mean, I, you know, there's awful meals where you've got about ten vegetables, stuffing, bird, funny little chipolatas, and so on. Um, I don't get it. I don't. I mean, I experienced it obviously, but I, I, it was something I'd never attempt to recreate. I'm interested in how much authenticity kind of matters to you because on the one hand you're very specific about you know the regions that these you know this particular sort of andouillette will be cooked in and 50 50 miles from the town it will be unknown you know you, you say that you shouldn't use cheese in a gratin du even even though Paul Bocuse says you can you know, he, he does indeed he's wrong <laughs> but I mean isn't food itself just so incredibly macaronic and food history so kind of yeah, yes, it is. It, it is macaronic. The authenticity thing is this: if you're going to get genuinely authentic Indian street food, you're going to get a bit of botulism. So I don't think it, it, being absolutely true to the source of a particular dish is not necessarily a great idea. And I think my thinking on this has been perhaps amended by living in France, where the French have, don't understand the idea of authenticity. Uh, the um, French colonies... So the terroir, an English word. Yeah, well, th- no, that, 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 that's, that's different. I'm talking about stuff which comes from outside France. The French ambition in the colonies was to turn everyone into a little Frenchman or Frenchwoman. The English attitude in the colonies was completely different. I mean, let people get on with their lives as, as, as they have previously. The French attitude to the cooking of other nations and other cultures is very similar they they think it can only be really good if it's made french if it's turned into something french and they do that so it's a sort of banh mi or something like that hmm? like a, something like a banh mi in vietnam which is yes yeah that, 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 quite and the, the i think a lot of french people who frequent Vietnamese restaurants would not really recognize the Vietnamese food that you get in Kingston Road and so on. It hasn't been Frenchified. Whereas the English are much more inclined to leave as it was. And, and, and authenticity, this is authentic, is a kind of boast. Whereas this is good, is a kind of boast in France. And so there is a, a kind of marked contrast there. But I, I, I do like the French attitude to things and you see it everywhere you see it in the football team and so on they you know anyone who's any good they turn into a french person so you can play for the national team i mean what do you make of the the sort of quite recent fad particularly on american university campuses to see food as a zone of cultural appropriation that if you make inauthentic sushi by putting avocado in it say you're you know dishonoring the japanese well, I, th- I, th- I didn't know about this, but I, I, I suspect that I, I, it's the same as everything else to do with cultural education and the, the dicta about cultural appropriation that comes out of American academe, which I think is regrettable, and I can't think of any sane person who'd find it anything other than regrettable. One of the things that's remarkable in your book is that you have such a Catholic sort of palette 
to the extent that you include in one recipe the dried spinal column of a sturgeon, if anyone can come by it. Yeah, um, and, and, and a special prize for anyone who can find it. Yes, a prize yeah. is more or less unmentionable on air. Yes. But um, at the same time, you say you've sworn off hair. You won't eat hair. No, I, I'm, I became shamefully sentimental. It's a place that we were living in the country in France before we moved to Marseille, which we, we got out of fairly quickly because we didn't really like being in the country and we didn't realise what it was like. There was a hare which used to come and sit about three metres from us very happily, and I think it knew that we weren't going to kill it. Everyone else in the neighbourhood spent all of every weekend in high-vis clothes, shooting at anything that would move, especially other people in high-vis clothes. The hare, who we even gave a name to, uh, Levi the Leveret, was such a sweet creature, and I I can't bring myself to ever again eat hare, although it was my favourite game by far, and I can remember it from the age of... God, four or five, and thinking, God, this is this is so delicious, but I, I, I can't do it. Well, it reminds me slightly of a, a professional chef I met who she could she said she could kill a rabbit, gut it, skin it, cook it, but she couldn't couldn't get herself to swallow it because the moment it went into her mouth, she'd just see little fluffy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's 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 ghastly finding one's got this um, awful maudlin side to oneself. Yes. I own up to it. It's um, it's disgrace. Yes. You also say which which seems. God, would you say Chinese food or Oriental food is for consuming, not for preparing? Yeah, because one doesn't begin to understand the culture of that food, and to cook it would be like writing in ideograms. I think it it, it is so alien and delicious, and I mean, I, I but I, I would never. Want to, want to go there? I mean, I think it's very odd when you find, uh, say, a dumpling restaurant which is run and owned by Europeans and Americans, and there is such one in, in, totally in, in, in Clapton. Yes, it's completely. You you can't really understand it unless you uh, unless you can read it and and be immersed in it somehow. I don't think there's any cooking in any any recipes in there from places which I haven't been to and which I've just read about. I mean, I, in some cases I knew about, I had read about the dish before I actually had it. But I think that, I mean, I don't know the Balkans, so I don't include any Balkan recipes. The bit of Russian stuff, and I've been to Russia a few times. But I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, no one would know, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's I, I think it would be in bad faith in a way. And one of the things you say is that in, in food... You don't think that, I mean, you're very down on the idea of fusion cooking, but also that anything really could be or should be invented. I think anyone who invents a dish is either a genius or delusional. Very, very few. Bocuse says that a chef is lucky if he invents one dish in his life, and a chef's job anyway is not to invent, but to improve to improve what's already there and it is often in my opinion improved by stripping out various ingredients which uh, have accreted down the years and going back to basics this is funny isn't it how certain things seem to persist that you know they they arrive in a dish and you very often just say no they're they're no good i'm thinking bread making for instance 
the idea that you had to need something for ages to develop the gluten turns out to be nonsense, but still people are doing it for years. And you've got, is it souffle you're saying you shouldn't, shouldn't need to put You don't need to put in flour into it, no. I mean, I, I, I worked out how to do soufflés without flour because of the, the st- dislike I have of touching wheat flour. But it's absolutely unnecessary. And they, they rise, they work just as well. But flour, and this is something I don't go into in the book, I mean, was, you know, roux sauces were the backbone of French cuisine up to the point of nouvelle cuisine in the mid to late 60s when Bocuse, Gerard, Passa and so on started doing this cooking, which they were stripping out what wasn't what they considered was unnecessary. There will be people who persist in using in using the old ways, but they're they're not not particularly necessary. But I mean, tradition and habit is is a these things are strong and they they rest with people even though they. It's like believing in th- in things which you know are not true, which I mean I don't quite understand that because I, d- I don't have any faith. But I, I mean faith is doesn't require actual proof, and the Eucharist doesn't require a- actual proof. And I mean to me it's just you know a, a wafer that sticks on the top of your mouth and some very very nasty liquid from rehydrated grape powder and ethanol. But people will believe. And in in all sorts of things, and they'll believe that you know cooking in London is the best in the world, which generally comes about because the restaurant PR machine is a lot better than busy, the chefs. Yeah, yes. Another thing in your book that's you know I could say I could take on faith is it, it's got an extraordinary kind of in-depth stuff about how to source very obscure ingredients. So you'll say. You know, well, there's this one fishmonger in this small town in Scotland which can get you this, and there's, you know, a particular, you know, and you tell us where to find testicles, and you've got. To... Do you have sort of notebooks in which you just no, keep wherever you found no, something? No, I, I, I just, I just, I just, I just remember them. But the testicles turns out to be wrong because Giles McDonough told me, who translated the yes. book about testicles, told me there are two places within a couple of hundred yards where he he lives in Kentish Town as it goes towards Highgate. I think it's Highgate. And he, he said there are a couple of places, but someone I know rang up one of them. The bloke said, testicles? No, 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 I wouldn't have any of that. <laughs> um, so um, Giles is oh, right, probably don't, wrong. Don't, don't follow don't, that. Don't, that don't, don't take Giles McDonough's yes, word okay. for anything. But I mean, some some of those places, yes, I, I, I do I do know I remember where where I found things, but I I don't keep a culinary notebook, and I never did, even when I was reviewing restaurants. I, 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 I didn't. No, it's just in the head. Yeah. And I suppose it's a very obvious question to ask, but I should. What would be what would be your last meal if you? Well, you last me- the last your... meal it, it obviously presumes that you're going to be executed, or you're going to. Yes, top, you might not be feeling hungry. Or you're going to be yes. top. You'll top yourself. <laughs> your desert island meal, then. That's, oh God, do I you don't have know. A particular Cas- dish cassoulet, I think. Well, there's a very good recipe for cassoulet in the book, so enjoy. Jonathan Meads, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel.